Thank you, Owen, for praying for us. I want to pray one more time, and then we're going to jump into the topic of love, the first of the fruit of the Spirit. Let's bow our heads one more time. Heavenly Father, there is a lot of confusion in our culture today concerning what love is, what it is not. And God, I I pray for all of us in this room, any of us is susceptible to be deceived about what love truly is. God, I pray that you would give us a submissive heart to your word, a humble and contrite heart that you do not despise, that trembles at your word, that loves your word, and that wants to know what your word says about the most important issues of life. And so, God, I pray right now we would better understand what you mean in your word when you describe the first of the fruit of the Spirit as the fruit of love. I pray you'd be honored right now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys agree with me that right now what love exactly is is a little bit confused in our culture? Would you agree on that? What love is? So one thing I like to say is whenever we're talking about something, especially something important, we need to define our terms at the beginning of the conversation. Because if we don't define our terms properly, we may not even know exactly what it is we're talking about. The, the world talks about loving yourself and loving others. So let's talk about loving yourself first. Now, I, I mention this every once in a while. I'm going to use a fancy term because this is the term people use. Okay, so see if you've ever heard of this. It's something called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. What that means is you as an individual, what it means to love yourself is that you as an individual, you look within your emotions, your heart, your desires, and you do what with them? You express them. Okay, it's not that hard on the the title there. You, you You as an individual look within, you see your deepest desires, and you live them out. You you express them. And if you do that, if you live in accordance with your own inward desires, especially in relationship to gender and human sexuality and those issues, but if you look within, you see what's there and you live it out, you are being, are you ready? You you are being your authentic or genuine or real self. And if you in any way fight against those desires or push against them, you are being, our culture would say, inauthentic, hypocritical, it's weird how they use the word this way, and you are not being true to yourself, you are not loving yourself, you are not accepting yourself exactly as you are. Next thing is, what does it mean to love others in our cultural moment? Our culture would say the way you love others is by simply affirming, approving, and celebrating whatever it is in their heart that they are expressing and living out consistently. Do you guys see that in our culture today? That giving approval of whatever is within someone's heart as they express it, to give approval to that is to love your neighbor. That's the world's understanding of love. Now, let's look biblically at how we can define love. Let's start with this. We all know the phrase. It's even popular to non-believers oftentimes. God is what? Love. God is love. comes from 1 John a couple of times there. Let, let, Let me just say a word about this. All true love comes from the source or the fountain of love that is the Trinitarian God of the Bible. So so just hear me on this. God the Father did not become love or loving when he created you and me. So he had someone to love. 
The very essence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that God has always and eternally been in loving relationship within the Godhead. God the Father did not become a father when he created you or me. God the Father has eternally always been a father, delighting in his Son by the Spirit. And the Son has always been eternally delighting in the Father by the Spirit. There is, a, there is this fountain of love that is at the very heart of God, of reality. And we, made in God's image, hunger for love and relationship. Because we are made in the image of God. So all true love finds its source in the Godhead. Let me just say as a footnote here. The God of Islam is called what? Starts with an A. Allah. Allah is not ever claimed to be love in the Quran. He is said to be loving. He's never said to be loved. Why? Because Allah eternally exists, according to Islamic theology, Allah eternally exists as an individual person with no one else to love. He does not have a son eternally begotten that he can delight in. He was isolated and alone until he created you. And then finally he had a way to express mercy and love to some. But do you see how much greater the God of the Bible is? I mean, first of all, the God of the Bible actually exists. So that's a bonus right there compared to Allah. But secondly, God is always in love, in a loving relationship. And that's the God in whose image we are made. Second thing about love. So first, God is love. So we must get our definition from God. But second thing here is our love for each other, our love for one another must be rooted in, grounded in our love for God. What does Jesus say? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he doesn't stop. What does Jesus add? And the second great commandment is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If I don't have love for God, my love for my neighbor is not going to be true love down to the core. Number three, love always aims to glorify God. To glorify Christ Jesus. That's love's true and ultimate aim. Philippians 1. Listen to this. Paul says, it is my prayer that your love. So he's talking about love. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So that you might approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. If I can shorten that long sentence from Paul, I pray that your love would abound more and more to the glory and praise of God. Love must have as its ultimate goal the the glorification of our great, loving, and gracious God. Number four, love delights in obedience to God's commandments. Now this is where it becomes less popular, okay? You hear this? Love delights in obedience To God's commandments? That suddenly doesn't sound like what we want to hear. But listen, Jesus said, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The, the, The way that I see love for Jesus in my life is that it shows itself by obeying him. If I love Jesus, I'm going to delight to obey him. If I love my mom and dad, I will delight to obey them. Similarly, so... In Romans 13, it says, to love is to fulfill God's commands. You've heard the commands. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. And any other commandment, it's all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The one who loves fulfills the law. 
Now, let me just go back to the world again. The world says this, and you test me if you think you see this in the culture. The world says, no, 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 that's not right. To suppress or even fight against inward desires in your heart and to submit to an external commandment from God or from your Bible or from your church or from whoever is actually not being authentic and true to yourself. It is to go against your true self. It is to play a hypocrite, to, to not truly conform to your heart's desires. And it actually says that it could be a form of oppression. Now, listen to this. This is what's going on right now, right? To, to submit myself to an external standard like the Bible and to say, I'm going to submit my heart and my desires and my actions to this book, the world says is a form of oppression because you are simply not able to be your authentic self. You know, today in a movie or in a, movie, in a book or something, in a story, the hero today, tell me what you think. The hero today is someone who hears what their pastor says, hears what their parents say, hears what their community says, and says, listen, I don't care what they say. I'm going to push against what they say. No matter what it costs me, I'm going to look within and I'm going to live out what I see within me. And even if it costs me a lot, I'm going to be true to myself. That is the hero today. Whereas scripturally, it would say almost exactly the opposite. When I look within and see a sinful desire, that's not my true self. That's a distortion of me. And I need God's grace and power to put to death the sinful desires within my heart that we all have. And so that I can become more like Christ. And scripture has this amazing idea. Your true self, your authentic self, the true you, is the most obedient you. The most holy you is the true you. The, the, the you that God has designed you to be is the you that obeys his commands and finds great joy and delight and satisfaction in him. And let, let me just say, if that sounds miserable, you say, I don't like that. Listen, everybody in this room, we are going to submit ourselves to some Lord in our life. Okay, it, it might be your desires that become your Lord. It might be your job. It might be what people think about you. It might be relationships. It might be money. It might be grades. It might be athletic success. Whatever it is, but we are all going to submit ourselves to some Lord that is going to tell us what to do. And the question is, is the Lord I'm living for going to actually satisfy my soul and forgive me when I fail? Number five, loving actions must include godly motives. This is kind of repeating a little bit, but listen to 1 Corinthians 13. You know the love chapter. Listen to this one verse, verse 3. If I give away all I have, so this is radical generosity. If I give away all my money, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, this is total self-sacrifice, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let's hear ourselves out here. External actions that obey God, that is a good thing. But if our heart is dead to God when we do those actions, is it truly love deep down? No. The Pharisees could have some kind of outward moral behavior. They tithed. They did things. They went to synagogue. They read their Bibles. But was their motive a love for God and a love for neighbor? No. So true love includes our motives, our godly motives. Number six. And by the way, if this sounds... Difficult at the end, I promise you there's going to be a lot of hope in the gospel. But let me get to that first. Number six, love does not use people for selfish advantage. 
Love does not use people for selfish advantage. Listen to Philippians 2. You, you probably know this passage, but l- listen to this. Paul says, have the same love. Now he's going to explain what he means. Have the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now I don't know about you, but if the verse stops there, I'm in trouble. Because that's an impossible list of commands. Is it not? Do nothing from selfishness. But, in, but consider others better than myself. That You can't just you know, snap your fingers and do that. You know, Paul knows that. So you know the very next thing he says? He says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count his equality with God something to exploit to his own advantage, but what he humbled himself, taking on the form of a slave, a servant, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name Above all names. Here's the point. None of us naturally can do what love demands of us. I mean, do you feel how far far short we all fall of this command? And here's the idea. Jesus loved us anyway. And he came to rescue us and shows us what true selfless love looks like. Number seven. Love delights in biblical truth. Number seven, love, biblical love. It delights in biblical truth. Let me go back to the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love does not delight in sin, in other words. But it rejoices with the truth. True love is thrilled by God's truth. True love loves God's word. It loves God's truth. It loves God's commands. It loves the doctrines of God that are in Scripture. It delights in the truth of God's Word. Ephesians 4 confirms it, says, Be speaking the truth in love to one another, and that we might all grow up into maturity. To speak the truth must be motivated by love, otherwise it can become, you know, too harsh. We, we all know this, right? Isn't, isn't there a way to speak the truth that is not coming from a heart of love? You just want to beat someone over the head with the truth? No, we don't, we don't want to beat someone over the head. What do we want to do? We want to give them the truth out of a heart of genuine care and concern. We speak the truth in love. Now let me just give a very specific illustration of this because it's happening this week with my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law, I was on the phone with him two days ago. He works for a major company in the United States with tens of thousands, I don't know how many exactly employees, an enormous company. You would know the name if I told you. And all of a sudden he had a test, he had to take an online test for his job, just came up a few weeks ago. And one of the opening questions was about whether or not you would use the transgender pronouns of a transgender person in the workplace. Now, my brother-in-law is a strong Christian, and he says, listen, I will love you, I will respect you if you're transgender, if you're made made in the image of God, I will love you, I I will speak truth to you, I will care about you. But he said, I cannot lie. And give you the wrong pronoun. If you're a biological man and say that you've got to call me she. He says, I cannot. It would violate my conscience. It would not be speaking the truth in love. I can't do that. And so he tells his supervisor, I can't finish this quiz because I can't answer this question the way you guys want me to answer it. His supervisor says, okay, we'll appeal appeal it to HR, uh, human resources. Human resources, HR sends back an email to my brother-in-law a couple days ago. He reads it to me on the phone. Then he sent it to me. This This is what his business said to him. These are the exact words. Quote, to successfully complete the annual compliance process, 
All questions must be answered, including the question regarding using correct pronouns. All employees are required to make a genuine attempt to use their coworkers' pronouns, and HR can think of no reason on religious grounds or any other under which any employee may forego making th that genuine attempt. Failure to complete the annual compliance process may result in disciplinary action up to and including termination. So my brother-in-law now is, is looking at the possibility of losing his job because why? He loves the truth and he loves people enough to not say what is not true even if it is costly. Are we there? Are we willing to say, listen, I'm going to love you even in a way that you will not think is loving. You, you may perceive me not using the correct so-called pronoun of a particular person. You may see that as unloving or bigoted or hateful. But I'm telling you from my heart, I love you. But because I love the truth, I cannot say what I know to be false. Let me give you a few verses. Galatians 4.16. Paul says to his beloved church, churches in Galatia. He says, have I then become your enemy because I've told you the truth? There will be some people who, no matter how much we love them and speak the truth to them, they will perceive God's truth as a form of hatred. Are we, are we, are we able? Are we, are we, listen, I'm being totally for real. Are our roots in Jesus deep enough to where when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, we can rejoice and leap for joy because great is our reward in heaven? Like Jesus said. Are, are our roots deep enough to where when you go to college... And you're around people who think very differently than people think here at this school. Will your roots be deep enough that you will never speak in a way that is condescending? You will not be a jerk to others, but you will speak the truth in love. But they may perceive your commitment to God in Christ as a form of being hateful, unloving. Are, are you able in that moment, firm in Christ, to say, I am so sorry that you perceive it that way, but I genuinely care about you. Number eight, love pursues the spiritual and physical well-being of others, even if it is costly. Love pursues the spiritual and physical well-being of others, even if it is costly. A couple of weeks ago, and maybe some of you were at the funeral, I'm not sure. There's a lot of people there. John Deans, this, this man right here, who I had the privilege to know, uh, he went to be with the Lord a couple of Sundays ago, I guess two and a half weeks ago. And John Deans in college was not a Christian. He was converted in college. And the moment he came to know Christ, John immediately, he had the gift of evangelism like no one I think I've ever maybe known. As soon as he was converted, you know what he would do? He'd grab a friend and start walking through dorm halls, knocking on doors, and sharing the gospel with the next person he met. He was one of those people. He, he, he could be scary sometimes. I was with him one time at UGA, and he, you know, he, you're not even ready to do evangelism with a stranger. And John would just walk you up to a UGA student and be like, hey, what's your name? Hey, Fred, how are you? Shake your hand. Hey, Mark, why don't you just go ahead and talk to Fred? And he'd just walk away. You're like, John, uh, you can't just leave me here. And so John would just throw you into the deep end with evangelism. And he was amazing at that. And he really taught a lot of us how to do evangelism with strangers, at, especially at UGA. And he started a ministry called The Great Exchange, which for 12 years now has gone to dozens and dozens of campuses all over the place. In Georgia, Alabama, South and North Carolina, and I think even in other countries they've gone to different places. I know... Some of you may have done that in Boston and other places. So it's, it's in a great, great ministry. Why, why do I bring up John Deans right now? Well, John 
genuinely love people. And he especially loved unbelievers, lost people, like in a way that is hard to even understand. And he, his ministry was called The Great Exchange, and it was founded on this verse in 2 Corinthians. So listen here. Listen to these words, even if you know them. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us. The love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, what is the love of Christ that was being described? It's the very next verse. This is where it all gets boiled down. This is what the love of God in Christ looks like. And this was the, this was the verse John founded his whole ministry, the Great Exchange, on. See if you can figure out where he got the term Great Exchange from this verse. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, God the Son. So for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear an exchange going on in that verse? God made Jesus, who never sinned, never knew sin, never experienced sin, God made him to be sin on our account, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. This is the heart of love, this is the heart of the good news that we have, that we can share with each other. Here it is. That all of us have failed to love God and neighbor as we are required. I don't know about you. Maybe even as I read all these things that love is today, maybe you felt, man, I am not measuring up. I mean, do you feel that? There's conviction. I'm not exactly where God wants me to be. And if you feel that conviction, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And here's what we do with that conviction of sin. We go, God, what am I, what am I going to do? I failed. And God says, I, I know you failed. I love sinners. I love those who don't love well. And I have sent my son to live a perfect and sinless life. He never knew sin. Jesus was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin. And on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus as if he had lived your and my sinful lives. All the sin of all those who would ever turn and trust Christ was placed on Christ. It was counted against Christ. And God the Father turned his back on his son and poured out his wrath and just judgment on Christ. Jesus took the, 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 the judgment that we deserve and he was buried and raised, triumphant over death, Satan, and sin. And now any of us who will simply turn in childlike trust from our sin and to Christ and embrace Christ by faith, in that moment... A great exchange takes place. My sin is taken away forever and placed on Christ and is buried in his grave. And Christ's perfect obedience, his perfect record of loving God and neighbor is now what? It is given to you. It is credited to your account if you will simply trust in Christ and in his finished work. So let me ask you. I've got an extra minute here. 
Where are you at? Not the person next to you, not anyone in your family. Where are you at in your own heart, in your relationship with the Lord Jesus? Maybe spiritually you're loving the Lord, you're walking in a measure of obedience, you really want to honor Him. Let's be honest, I I spent a lot of years at Westminster as a non-Christian. I know what it's like to be here kindergarten through 10th grade as a non-Christian. It's very easy to just slip under the radar and just kind of go through the motions in Bible class and wherever and to not really have any love for the Lord in my heart. That's what I was. Let me ask you, if that's where you are, if that's where you sense yourself to be, in this moment, if you feel like I'm basically bored with the Lord, if I'm just being honest, I have no real passion or love for Scripture, for prayer, for church, for God. It's just not a matter of interest. i got about 100 things I am t- way more excited about than, than God in the Bible. Listen, if that's where you are, I know exactly what that feels like because I sat in chapel in this room as a non-Christian. Okay, I know exactly what that's like to be like, all right, when is this going to end? Let's move on to something more enjoyable. I, I totally understand that feeling. Let me ask you, if that's you, are you, are you in any way right now bothered by that? And do you want more of Christ in your life truly? If so, I'm going to give you a moment in, in, in the silence of this moment to pray and just speak with God. Ask Him to move on your heart. Ask Him to give you new affections and desires for Him, to rekindle that fire of love for Him. And then I'll close this in prayer. So let's bow and pray quietly in this moment. Heavenly Father, I pray for students in this room who maybe were like I was a number of years ago, for whom your commands seem burdensome, not enjoyable or a delight. It's much more desirable to follow our natural flesh and inward impulses than to submit ourselves to your word, and for whom Jesus just does not seem interesting or enjoyable or an object of love, but just a boring historical figure we've got to talk about because we're in a Christian school. God, I pray for those students that you would do the miracle that you did in my own heart in 2003, that you would begin to open the blind eyes and the deaf ears, take away the calluses on the heart so that they can begin to see the beauty of Jesus the glory of the gospel that you gave your son to save helpless sinners. In this is the love of God. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath absorber of our, for our sins. So God, I, I pray that you would open eyes, give a true delight and joy in Christ that is from your Holy Spirit. And that it would be a lasting and permanent change. And that you would get the glory and that we would have the joy. Got to help this school more than ever to be a place of true love, that our motives would be in you, that our love would be submissive to your scriptures, and that our love would be imitation, an imitation of Christ's great and sacrificial love for us. I thank you for these students. Uh, we love them. We care about them, God. So be at work in all of our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.